morning, everyone. As I get things kind of sorted out here, I want to tell you something. I was kind of having trouble sleeping last night. <clears throat> and like some men do, some will admit it, some will not admit it. But I'm one of those that if I go through all of the channels maybe 14 times, <laughs> it might help me to go to sleep. But one interesting thing I found last night, uh, midnight-ish, I understand there's a new Muppet movie coming out. Did you see the, the advertisement? A little bit of trailer. I'll tell you what, Hollywood's got some secrets because that Kermit looks fantastic. And I heard it was Noni Juice. I pulled that on my son Miles and he says, Dad, come on, it's the same puppet. But Kermit is looking good, and so are each one of you. Here I am, Lord, and here you are, too. Okay, I heard Utah. Is that correct? Philadelphia. Florida. Has anyone traveled Boston? So in this somewhat intimate little setting, we've got a lot of people. 130 plus. I'm so glad it looks like everyone's kind of moved forward because when you're way out there, it's like I want to lean into you. But it is so great to see each one of you. I was quizzing Matt Steele just a little bit this morning, knowing he was trying to get the program ready, get the songs just right, get everybody counted off. You're going to do this, you're going to do that. And I said, Matt, six years ago today, do you know what I was doing? Somewhat glossed over. Six years ago today is, is one of the most memorable days of my life. Six years ago today, I was in northern Wales with one of my dearest buddies. I was in the back seat of his car with my oldest son who was the same age as now my youngest son is today. My good buddy driving, his wife up front, me in the back, driving in northern Wales, and this best buddy of mine just happens to be Matt Steele's dad. And I'm so excited because mm, less than a month, I get the privilege of picking them both up from the airport in Tulsa because they're coming for another visit. Wonderful times will be had. Well, brethren, I tell you what, we think of the feast, we think of places that we have been, but I know talking to brethren who have traveled, talking to brethren who Branson may be the furthest they have ever traveled for a feast, but when feast time comes around, I, like so many of us, think of one place, and it's Jerusalem. I've never been to Jerusalem. I want to go to Jerusalem more than I want to go back to Wales. I think of Jerusalem every time something on the History Channel, Discovery Channel, public television, whatever it is about Jerusalem, I want to watch it. Because maybe I can walk upon one stone, maybe I can see one thing that my Jesus saw. Maybe a place that he walked on and just maybe 
get a breath of that air that he might have breathed. But it's been a long time. But one of the things about Jerusalem is that it is so difficult for me is to visualize what I call the unimaginable. To have lived in Jerusalem long after the, the house of Israel had already been taken away by Assyria, but to be a resident of Jerusalem and one day have your city besieged by Babylonians. And then the weeks that would go by until one day the walls were penetrated. And as we read in Jeremiah, it says all of the princes of the king of Babylon, they just walked right in and sat at the middle gate. Now, one of these conquering Babylonians said something quite profound. And I want us to begin today with Jeremiah 40. Jeremiah 40, verses 1 through 3. Now keep in mind, the siege had lasted for a long time. Until that one day, they penetrated the walls and said, we're here. Then notice what one of these Babylonians said. If we begin in verse 1 of chapter 40, it says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord... After that Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah. Jeremiah had been chained, but was told to let him go by this particular person. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard. He'd let him go from Ramah, where he had been taken from being bound in chains among all that were carried away captive of Jerusalem and Judah, which were carried away captive unto Babylon. But Jeremiah was let go. Now notice this. And notice who says it. And the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said unto him, The Lord thy God had pronounced this evil upon this place. And he continues, Now the Lord hath brought it and done according as he hath said, because you have sinned. So they seize the city, they kick the door down, and he comes in and say, Jeremiah, this is why it happened, because you sinned against the Lord and have not obeyed his voice. Therefore, this thing has come upon you. Now look at Daniel 9, verse 16. Because Daniel testifies to this. The Babylonians' words show right up in the prayer time of Daniel just before he was given the 70 weeks prophecy by who? Gabriel. So in verse 16, it's an incredible intercessory prayer for a place. It's an incredible in intercessory prayer for a people. I want to take just one verse. He says, O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech you, let your anger and your fury be turned away. Be turned away from thy city, Jerusalem, thy holy mountain. Here's where he says the same things the Babylonian said. Because for our sins... 
and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. Now just prior to this prayer, just prior to this, Daniel testifies that during that first year of Darius, that Daniel understood by the word of the Lord that came unto Jeremiah that the Lord would accomplish 70 years of desolations upon Jerusalem. Long after the house of Israel had been removed. But here in Jerusalem, 70 years of desolation that the Lord would accomplish. And after those deportations, after that city was sieged and all of the horrific details that Jeremiah has about that time, in deportations out of Jerusalem, they found themselves in Babylon. But after, after that time, so accounted for by the Lord, the exiled remnant, it began to return. A remnant of the exiles first came back under Zerubbabel. Years later, a few more came back under Ezra. And then, of course, we know that our third man in restoration, in rebuilding with a remnant, was, of course, Nehemiah. Nehemiah is my man of focus today. I say that in a way that you know what I mean. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is everything. But Nehemiah is my man today. I really appreciated Mr. Pettit's message on the Sabbath where he took the life of Abraham 12 tests that he went through. And what he did, he presented life application from the Old Testament. Life application from Abraham. I don't have 12 tests with Nehemiah, but I got one comment. He's one man. I want to look at one comment in one instance of his incredible life. I was thinking this morning that one could preach. One could preach an AM, a PM service, maybe a little time for a breakout Bible study for the entire feast. And I promise you, you could use Nehemiah in every message. It's an incredible book, an incredible man. So with that said, here we are in the midst of the feast. It's day five. It seems like I just said it was day three this morning, but it's day five. Here in the midst of the feast, let's look at Nehemiah chapter six. Nehemiah chapter six. I'll tell you what, just looking at those three names right there. Sanballat, 
Tobiah. And if I have to pick a favorite of those guys, it's probably Geshem the Arab. Incredible names. But let's read this. A little bit of narrative I've got to get through. I want to make one small point before I get to the one comment, but you'll know when I get there. Nehemiah 6 begins, Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab. And if that wasn't enough, he says, And the rest of our enemies. When they heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors and the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But Nehemiah says, But they thought to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? That's a sermon right there. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times. And I answered them in the same manner. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me as before. Fifth time. This time he's got some documentation. <laughs> Nehemiah. Look what it said. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says, that Geshem must have had some stroke with those guys. Because if just all of the nations wasn't enough to throw his name in there, wow. It's reported among the nations, and Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah. There's another message. Now these matters will be reported to the king, being Artaxerxes. So come, therefore, and let us consult together. You ever get that? Got a situation? Somebody's got a remedy. So why don't you come on down here and let's consult together. I think we can sort this out. But notice what he says. Then I said unto him, saying, No such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. Verse 9 is a good one. For they all were trying to make us afraid saying their hands will be weakened in the work and it will not be done. I had to ask someone this morning, there's a character in Oliver Twist called the Artful Dodger. He's a character. In moments like this, when you've got a report among the nations with a Geshem involved, there's a character that Satan likes to build up within us in here and in here. It's not the artful dodger. It's the fretful codger. Because that word, cogitation, especially when you put fretful in front of it, you start going, oh, oh, 
all of the plans the Lord has sent me to do are going to come to nothing because of all of our enemies and Geshem's involved too. You cogitate. You cogitate. Fretfully cogitate and stew. But I just absolutely love this. Notice what Nehemiah said before. He says, why should the work cease while I leave it to come down to you? After all this was thrown in his face, here's what he says. He knew it. He knew what was happening. He knew that everything was being thrown at him to make sure he failed. But what does he do? Very quickly he says, now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. And he went back to work. Simple. But I like that. Now, therefore. The hammer's on you. You're in the vice. Now, therefore, oh God, strengthen my hands. That's not the comment I want to get to. So let's move. Afterward, I came to the house of Shemaiah, which scripture says he was a secret informer. He has some information. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they're coming to kill you. That's right. At night, they're coming to kill you. If it wasn't enough with the open letter and the four and five time visitation, this guy lets me know it's about over. But brethren, here it is. Nehemiah 6.11. Notice what Nehemiah says. Should such a man as I, should such a man as I flee. And then he goes on. And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. I love that. Should such a man as I. If you have a mental notepad or you have a pen and a piece of paper, if the person's collar in front of you is open, write what kind of man is that? Just one word's fine. Just think about it. Ask the question, what kind of man is that? What do you think? What kind of man? Such a man as I. Now, you remember it was Nehemiah that had a very high-level position. Don't let cupbearer give you any impression that he was just some butler because this was the man that was to one day be governor. What kind of man was he to have held that position, high-level position, with Artaxerxes? And when he says, should such a man as I flee, is it because he wasn't a Levite? I mean, is, is that it? I mentioned this before. Joe Kovacs is a man that many of us got to 
got to meet and spend a few day, days with. He's the author of a book called Shocked by the Bible. And I understand he has another book coming out. Now, some of you do know and some of you don't know G. Gordon Liddy. I'm not a big Nixon buff or a Watergate buff, but I do know G. Gordon Liddy, and he's an interesting character. I was listening to an interview that G. Gordon Liddy did with Joe Kovacs about his book. And G. Gordon said really an amazing thing. He said, you have to think about what words mean. You have to think about what words mean. And when I see the word usage that Nehemiah used in this instance of should such a man as I is much more than just a legal stipulation. I guess I woke up about five this morning thinking about a man named Bill Fowler. Some of you know Bill Fowler, knew Bill Fowler. He's long passed away. Some of you don't know who he was. And you know what? For maybe just that instant, I actually felt I was in Wagner in the mid-90s, just for a minute. Because Bill Fowler was the feast coordinator of feast coordinators. But that quality is shared with so many people in this room. And as I thought of Bill Fowler, I think of all of the people that are working as he worked so hard with everything that he had, the feast was going to be a time of rejoicing for every one of the brethren that came. Song leader, speaker, baptized me with Landon Capp's grandfather at Wagner. MC of the fun show. Wonderful person. But what's really wonderful, brethren, is to see that same shared quality that I was first introduced to with Bill Fowler continue with this feast right here. Now the reason I say that is that we're investigating Nehemiah. The man that went before him of course was Ezra and they had to have had the same shared qualities because what did they do? The same job. One just went before the other one. A remnant an exile was to be brought back, rebuilder, restorer, and to really gather the people around the covenant. So I found a clue in Ezra that really helped me understand a little further about what kind of man Nehemiah was because of that shared quality of purpose shared quality of commitment and duty. So let's look at Ezra 8. I've been thinking about what is recorded here in Ezra for weeks now, and each of you are going to have to think about this. Because it's, it's, it's deep. 
I was so guilty and negligent all of those years ago to not completely immerse myself in Ezra and Nehemiah and the Kings and the Chronicles until I was somewhat brotherly, lovingly chastised by an individual who said, Ron, you're missing a lot. Well, I amen him. He's not here. But I've never forgotten what he said because open rebuke is what? Better than secret love? You know, a little bit of vanity rasping is good for you every now and then. You know what a rasp is? It's kind of what I call what the weather's going to do tonight. If you've got this hunk of wood that's like warm weather, and you've got this rasp, and you just go knock an edge off of it, and it's cooler, that's what that rasp did in that open rebuke to my kind of arrogancy. And I appreciate that, because things that I'm uncovering in, in Ezra and Nehemiah and in the lives of the kings are life changers. And with that said, I want us to look at Ezra 8 in verse 21. And just think about it. Think about what Nehemiah said. Because this helps to answer that question. Ezra 8 and verse 21. See, in the second remnant exodus from Babylon, okay, Ezra and his companions through the provision, through the abundance, through God Almighty, were given an incredible donation, I guess it was, from Artaxerxes to take to the temple. There's gold and there's silver and all of the things that these people might need by the blessing of God to say, yeah, you're going to go, but I'm going to bless you to take this with you. And Artaxerxes just opened the gates. So we find them here in Ezra 8, verse 21. Where Ezra says, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava. So somewhere on this journey toward Jerusalem, there came a point at this river Ahava where Ezra says, stop. I'm proclaiming a fast that we might humble ourselves before God to seek from him the right way for us and our little, little ones and all our possessions. Ezra's like the focal guy. Everybody get behind Ezra. Ezra's going to do it. Ezra says, stop. We're not going any further. Verse 22 is powerful. He proclaims a fast for this reason. He says, for I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road. Ezra proclaims a fast because he was ashamed to ask for protection. Because we had spoken to the king saying, the hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him, but his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and entreated our God for this, and he answered our prayer. See, that was probably another time 
for what I call that fretful cogitation. Because what did he say? He was ashamed to request an escort because he knew there was trouble on the road. He was ashamed to go ask man over and above what is exclusively within the provision and sufficiency of the eternal. But I just think that is so incredible. What did he do? Proclaims the fast. And it wasn't some huge, long, drawn-out sermon that he gave. He just said, the hand of our God will be upon us. Is that enough? Is it enough to have the hand of our God upon us? I mean, think about it. Here's Ezra. He's got all these people with him. He's got an abundance of gold and silver. All of these possessions. And he says, thank you, Artaxerxes, for blessing us so much. I can see the hand of God in this. I can see that we're being blessed on our journey. But you know, since you've done this, hmm. And I know I said that the hand of God will be upon us, but you know, while we're at it, you want to give me a thousand armed guys just to be safe? Do we do things like this in our daily life? We proclaim Jesus. We, we proclaim the Father. But I tell you what, fretful cogitation is very powerful. And when it's in the operation of Satan the devil to send you Sanballats, Tobias, and Geshem, the Arabs in your life, Satan knows he's got you if you'll go into that fretful cogitation mode instead of saying, now therefore, strengthen my hands. To just rejoice, to, to, to cry out, I could just see it happening. Our God is mighty to save, Ezra said, and told the king, give me the goods and send me a thousand soldiers. Really, of course he was ashamed. Because how shameful would it have been for Ezra to have proclaimed the sufficiency of the eternal and then come around again and said, you know what, God, you ain't really that tough. Something might happen that you're not aware of. I've got some armed soldiers with me. See, I can see them. It's not as though being told to go back home with all of this with you to restore the temple wasn't enough. I need more security. I need more security. It's just fantastic. I was ashamed, he said. But notice what happens when we get down to Ezra 8 and verse 31. Ezra 8 and verse 31 says, Then we departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. Mm. 
this is good. And the hand of our God was upon us. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from the ambush along the road. It wasn't just the enemy. It was that ambush. He knew in proclaiming that fast, he says, there's going to be enemies. And also there was an ambush. And that's usually what happens when you're looking out for your enemy. Wham! There's the ambush. So I call this the Ezra element, okay? The Ezra element in a believer's life as we search to uncover, discern, and comprehend the kind of man Nehemiah was is honoring the eternal, honoring the eternal, honoring the Father, honoring Jesus Christ beyond just the lips. Because, brethren, we know that we have to honor the Father. We have to honor Jesus. We have to honor them with our very thoughts. And then when we honor the Father and we honor Jesus Christ with our very thoughts, the subsequent actions derived from those thoughts, when the action is put in place from the thought, the actions will then glorify the Father so that when we proclaim the sufficiency of the strong arm of the Almighty, there's no need to ask for anything else. He is mighty to save. He is mighty to save. Well, as they spat in his face, as they spat in his face, as they smashed him with fists, as they open hands slapped him. I had an instructor years ago, tough guy. He said he'd rather be hit smack jab in the face with a fist and be open hand slapped in the ear. Then he proceeded to say what happens to the eardrum and what happens to the head and what happens to you when you receive that just adds another element to what Jesus endured. Spat on, beat on, open hand slapped on. While all this was going on, Peter sat in the courtyard, right? One young girl comes up to him and says, hmm, you were with Jesus of Galilee. Peter had a comment. Another girl came up and said, yes, I saw you. You were with Jesus of Nazareth. Peter had another comment. Then scripture says that a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, so here's Peter maybe encircled by a bunch of people, and they say to him, Peter, we know you're one of them because your speech betrays you. I know you're lying by the way you're talking. This is why each one of us have to guard our thoughts so that our thoughts don't lead to actions 
that betray the profession of our mouths. Ezra had guarded thoughts because he was ashamed to ask of man anything above the sufficiency of what he proclaimed about his God. Nehemiah had guarded thoughts knowing that at any time his life could be taken in a violent and brutal way but said, Lord, you know this, now therefore strengthen my hands. And because isn't that what Paul is really saying that about carnal warfare and that our weapons aren't carnal and all of this, but he ends that one particular verse in 2 Corinthians where he says that we must bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. It's every one of them. It's easy for me to bring my thoughts into captivity here at the Feast of Tabernacles before each one of you smiling lovingly back at me. I've got good thoughts going on right now. But that really kind of takes it into another level when we look at Ezra. Because Ezra was operating with the belief of somebody's words 24-7, 365. As each one of us do, each one of us have the belief of someone's words at work in us 24-7. 365. And if we have every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ, whose words, whose words will we be believing and whose words will we then be acting upon and living our lives, knowing that the sufficiency of Almighty God is the sufficiency because he is mighty to save. But you're probably saying, I mean, come on, I'm not an Ezra. Just raising my family, you know, got a job. I'm not Ezra. I'm no Nehemiah. Well, what are you? Brian, you want to put the next verse up? I want you to ask yourself who you are knowing that about you. Who are you? Dead. But now your life, okay? Your life, hidden. I've heard certain people say before in the past that you die and your life is hidden in Christ. That's not correct. I'm going to be real technical on that one because it's bigger than that. That says, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ, right? In the Father. Who are you knowing that about yourself? And as Paul wrote to the Galatians, he said, by Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I to the world. See, the thing is, is that we can say, hallelujah, I'm dead, my life is hidden with Christ Jesus in God, but we lack the discernment to stay hidden. Because of that, fretful, 
codger that likes to rear itself up to doubt the sufficiency of the eternal and to doubt that he is mighty to save. But see, the thing about it is, you know that, that carnal mind that Paul talks about in Romans 8? That, that, that carnal mind which, which wants you stuck on fretful cogitation, the carnal mind is most happy when you want nothing to do with God because there's more to being subject to God Almighty than showing up to church on Saturday. There's so much more to being subject to God Almighty than just showing up to church on Saturday. And your carnal mind knows that. But I tell you what, the carnal mind rages to be independent. The carnal mind refuses to accept total dependence on the sufficiency of the eternal because the carnal mind will do stuff like this. It will rationalize and go, you know, I really just don't understand that. God had something, you know, good for like, you know, Nehemiah to do. Why in the world would he have to have enemies anyway? Then the carnal mind likes to continue. And it says, you know, why in the world would Ezra have to fast? If it was such a big deal, why didn't God just kind of sit behind him and just scoot him on along? See, you follow that train of thinking, and that carnal mind really gets worked up. And then it says, you know, wouldn't it be easier to not need God at all? I don't need God. Big sentence coming up. But why in his infinite wisdom, it's unsearchable honor, unsearchable glory, his incredible praiseworthiness, full of tender mercies, full of loving kindness. We cannot imagine the depth of the majesty of the eternal. We cannot fathom the depth of the Father. We cannot fathom the depth of Jesus. But why it's always been this way like what Nehemiah dealt with. Why it's always been this way, like Ezra proclaiming a fast, because he knew there would be enemies on the road, it's because of this. Deliverance is the revelation of the strong arm of the eternal, and that he is mighty to save deliverance. It's just exactly what Ezra said. He delivered us! All I did was tell the king that God's sufficient. Give me the stuff. I'm out of here. I got work to do. We all know there's a difference between busy and being productive, but when you're productive, when you've yielded yourself as an instrument for God, you realize it's later than you think. And there's some things that have got to be done. And fretful cogitation makes sure that if it's not at least 
really delayed a long time to like that passed by sale date, it just won't get finished. And I love that phrase, deliverance is the revelation of his strong arm and that he is mighty to save. Okay, let's look at Psalm 33. Brian, do you know how long I've been up here? How many? <laughs> wow. Are you serious? Well, maybe do part two next year. <laughs> <clears throat> Psalm 33 in this little... You know, I try not to do... a. A lot of reading and try to make applicable points from what we read. But I sat and looked at Psalm 33 and I, I said, okay, I just got to read a little chunk, okay? I've just got to read a little chunk. Going back to that one phrase, though, just one second. Deliverance is the revelation of his strong arm and that he is mighty to save. Did you really listen to the words that Mike and Angie sang the other, the other day? You need to get a copy of those lyrics. I think the song is called Blessings. And sometimes blessings and sometimes healing and sometimes those things which will, which will transfer into the kingdom might come through tears, might come through some pain. It might come through actually, brethren, being delivered and the revelation of his strong arm. Psalm 33, verse 11 says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. It says, The plans of his heart to all generation. Isn't it amazing to know and have a glimpse and to have some sort of excitement about the plans of his heart? You know the Eternal Father has plans? He's got plans. Huge plans. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he has chosen as his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men from the place of his dwelling. He looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. Now let's look at this. As you see those children file in here on Youth Day, I want this bit of the psalm to be in your mind. As those children come in here and delight each one of us, I love this when it says, He fashions their hearts individually. Christy, is your baby awake? She's not. There's a beautiful baby right there. This room is filled with children. And when I read this, that he's fashioning their hearts individually, what does that say about us as a family of believers knowing that the Eternal Father and Christ Jesus are fashioning their hearts individually to reveal the plans that the Father has in his heart to them? Do you see why there's no time for fretful cogitation? Because if I'm caught up fretfully cogitating, 
children are the last thing on my mind because then it becomes all me-centric and how fretful and how dire and how, oh, if I only had a thousand armed soldiers, it'd be okay. Having our thoughts into captivity in Jesus will make us ashamed to seek that which is beyond the provision and sufficiency of God Almighty. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. Now, Nehemiah would say this. He would say, no king is saved by the multitude of an army. Okay, Brian, let's skip all the way to the bottom. I've got to get this closed. I can't do a part two next year. I've got to close this, because the, or the title won't even make any sense. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. What I want to say in this part of the psalm is in verse 22, where it says, Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. If you need an abundance of God's mercy, and every one of us do, you have to ask yourself a question. What's your level of hope in him? If you need maximum mercy, you won't get it with minimum hope. It's like an equal statement. This is going to equal that. If you want the abundance of the mercy, you better get the hope going. Because what? He's mighty to save. Okay? Okay. What kind of man is Nehemiah? What kind of man, what kind of person would say, would, would such a man as I, would such a person as I, what kind of person is this? I want to go ahead and go to Jeremiah 17, verse 7, because if you wrote the word blessed on your friend or on your paper or in your mind, that's the kind of man Nehemiah was. It says, but blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made, and I mean that's daily making. I've got to get up and make him my hope. I've got to get up and make him my confidence. Blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. Verse 8. Oh, I love this. They. They are like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. As we go on, you got to remember what Nehemiah said. He said, should such a man as I flee. This part of Jeremiah continues to go, what? Such trees. Such trees. Nehemiah is a tree. So are you. An incredible tree. But look, such trees are not bothered. Not bothered. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. I tell you what, brethren, it's hot. Still producing fruit. Have you ever known it to be so dry? Still producing fruit. Such trees are not bothered. I had a lot more. I'm going to stop right there because I want to leave that in your mind. Because we are such trees, right? We are such trees, such as Nehemiah. <laughs>